A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. That's right, it's an Arscast on a Friday during the off-season. It's not what we normally do. We keep the Arscast extra going, of course, during the summer. James is away at the moment, so we're not going to have one until next week, probably next Thursday, an Arscast extra, because he's sunning himself in Spain, eating ham on ruffles and doing all the fun stuff that you should do on your holidays. However, today we have got an Arscast, a slightly different kind of Arscast than the ones we normally do. We're not going to focus too much on Arsenal per se, uh, because there's not a lot going on. I mean, we've got the preseason stuff. You know, we're winning games in China. We're beating Bayern Munich at last, getting revenge for that 10-2 thrashing in the Champions League last season by drawing 1-1 with them and beating them in a penalty shootout to lift the International Champions Cup, the most prestigious cup that has been awarded anywhere in the world this week on a Wednesday in China in 37-degree heat in air that is so filthy and noxious and unhealthy it might as well have come from satan's arsehole that's it that's what we've been doing and of course there's the the alexis stuff and the oxlade chamberlain stuff and the ozil stuff and when are we going to sell perez and jenkinson and debushi and wilshire and gibbs and all that kind of stuff but we don't have anything new to tell you on that so today we are going to talk about tactics well i'm not going to talk too much about tactics i I'm going to ask a lot of questions about tactics because today my guest is one of the best football tactics writers around, Michael Cox. Uh, you'll know him from his blog, Zonal Marking. He also writes for 442, for ESPN and for The Guardian. And he's got a brand new book out called The Mixer, which is the story of Premier League tactics from Route 1 to False Nines. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good to have you on at last. I think we've tried to do this a few times, but for whatever reason, it hasn't... Uh, Hasn't quite worked out. Yeah, no, it's been good. I'm a, I'm a regular listener, of course, and and the only <laughs> previous book I'd written for is a, a book by the name of So Paddy Got Up. So, uh, yeah, you were the one who gave me my literary debut. Oh, wow. Wow. High praise, indeed. Uh, we'll come to that, actually, a little bit later on. But I want to talk maybe a little bit first about about the blog, about zonal marking and, and how that came about. Was it a case that tactics was something that you were just interested in and you you decided, I'm going to write about that because it's what I'm into? Or did you kind of spot a bit of a niche in the blogging world? Because there really wasn't anything around at that time covering tactics in any significant way. Yeah, a little bit of both, I'd say. Uh, I think there was a niche kind of not just in the blogging world, but in football coverage in general. Um, I think people take for granted how much football coverage has got better, really, in the last few years. I mean... um, you know, now we have kind of Gary Neville and, and Jamie Carragher on Sky, who I think have really upped up the game and uh, raised the bar. And I think coverage nowadays is is not bad, to be honest. But if you think back to the the 2010 World Cup, you know, um, the coverage then was just absolutely terrible. And 
uh, I think particularly the, the pundits basically seemed to be in the in the comfort zone. They weren't really putting in research about foreign teams and, and countries they hadn't encountered before, and, and certainly not covering tactics in depth. So I think just you know putting in research and and analysing patterns of games was um, kind of a relatively novel thing. I think if I had launched the website. Uh, Two years ago, maybe it wouldn't have been particularly successful because you know television coverage was dealing with tactics and was increasingly involving stats. But uh, yeah, a few years ago, there was nothing around really. Yeah, it, I, in the book itself, you start by painting the Premier League as a fairly unsophisticated landscape, and I think that's true in in many ways. Um, and we'll come to that in a moment. But you know, when, when I think for my entire life, when I played football, organized football, it was always. 4-4-2. There was never anything other than 4-4-2. And when I went to live in Spain, we played with this team, sort of uh, a mix of ex- expats and and Barcelona fans because it was in Barcelona. I remember we played a kind of 3-1-2-3-1 formation. I was one of the center halves. And, and I can remember one of the games shouting at the guy who was playing ostensibly wide midfield to come back and give me some cover. And one of the Spanish guys explaining to me, no, look, you don't get him to come back. He stays there. If you need help, one of the central midfielders is going to come back and move across to to cover that area. And that it was like revolutionary to me. I've never seen anything like it. And um, you look at some of the efforts to explain tactics in the past. Can we talk about Andy Townsend and the and the tactics truck? It, it, <laughs> I mean, look. In fairness, uh, perhaps as an idea, it was a good one, but the implementation was not so great. I don't think people were really ready for it in a way, were they? Yeah, I think you're spot on there. I don't think it was awful in itself. And, um, you know, Townsend's a pundit who gets criticised really for saying the obvious. And I think in that section, he was trying to do proper analysis. But ITV, I mean, they got the right to the Premier League in in 2001 for the highlight show. They had it for three years and they tried a couple of things. I mean, they they tried the the tactics truck. They also tried Prozone um, for the first time in, in kind of English football coverage. They didn't really get either of them right. And I think that kind of scared other broadcasters from from any innovations, from trying to be brave. And it meant that for 10 years, despite the fact that a lot of other sports move forward in terms of coverage, despite the fact that technologically everyone had, you know, new tools available to them, there wasn't really any progress in that 10 years, really. Yeah, so uh, the book begins uh, at the start of the Premier League era. And as I said, it it, it uh, paints a picture of a, a fairly unsophisticated football landscape where everything is pretty much the same. There are, you know, big teams and small teams and sometimes the small teams can work out the big teams or find ways to to hinder the big teams and that seemed to be the the emphasis of what tactics were at that time. You speak about the back pass rule as something that really changed the game uh, around that period. Can you just explain a little bit um, in that regard how, how that had such a big impact? Yeah, it was an absolutely huge change. I mean, probably the biggest rule change in football for about 80 years. Um, I mean, if you go back to Euro 92, which was the last tournament before the Premier League, it was just so obvious that teams were using the fact that they could pass back to the goalkeeper and the goalkeeper could pick it up to to waste time. And whenever they went 1-0 up, I mean, particularly Denmark, who won the competition, whenever they went 1-0 up, they used to play around with the ball at the back. They'd pass it back to Schmeichel and he'd pick it up and they'd just repeat the process. And it was incredibly boring. Yeah. Um, and so it was the start of the Premier League that the, the back pass was was changed across Europe. 
And it just meant many things. I mean, one, it meant the goalkeeper had to be able to play the ball out with his feet rather than his hands. So teams who played long balls struggled because usually the goalkeeper would pick it up and then launch it. And then gradually it meant the defenders had to become more comfortable in possession because they couldn't, you know, just play it back to the goalkeeper. It meant that teams had more incentive to press high up the pitch to force mistakes. It meant that the, goal, the ball didn't spend so long in the goalkeeper's hands at either end, so the game was quicker. And so gradually it just changed football. It changed the way defenders played. It changed the speed of the game and it gradually made football more entertaining. And that was perfect, really, for the start of the Premier League because the um, you know the football in, in the early 90s wasn't particularly attractive for various reasons, but this certainly helped. Yeah, and you had managers, for example, like Kevin Keegan, who nobody, I think, would, would put down as a, as a great tactician, um, but who created these uh, attacking teams, perhaps taking advantage of that. And I think it was really interesting that you talked about Liverpool as one of the teams or one of the clubs that really suffered because of this rule, because that was a big part of the way that they ground out success. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, Liverpool famously did did struggle, but also Leeds, who'd won the the final old first division title, and then I think finished seventeenth in in the next campaign. And I must mention Arsenal as well, who mm. scored the most goals in the final old first division season. And of course, the first year they were still very solid defensively, won both the cup competitions, but they were the the, uh, the they scored the least in in the first Premier League season. And part of that was because you know George Graham's side wasn't used to building up play from the back. It was it was more about long balls to Ian Wright, and so they were fine defensively, but in an attacking sense, they uh, struggled massively. Yeah. Well, let's talk, touch on George Graham a little there because obviously people associate him with a team that can really defend well and that's obviously what he wanted from his teams to uh, to stay organised. He wanted his wide men to work hard but I think there's this um, perhaps false view of Graham's Arsenal that it was just completely dour, boring football. That 1991 team came so close to becoming invincible before Arsene Wenger's team did. They only lost one game that season uh, to Chelsea. But 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 did that rule, the back pass rule, or his, his focus on defending constrain him from a, a tactical point of view that more and more he became, uh, he epitomised the defensive side of his game rather than the attacking? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think that's pretty much true. Um, you know, it's notable that when when well, first when Bruce Rioch took over and, and then Arsene Wenger, you know, all the players say that the focus and training changed. It was it went from what you do without the ball to what you do with the ball, and that's just a very obvious, very fundamental shift. The thing I'd say here is that when we talk about boring football these days and really defensive teams, we almost always are talking about teams who park the bus and defend really deep. But that's exactly what Arsenal didn't do under George Graham. It was all about that famous high off sideline. And they were really pressing the, the play. And, you know, keeping a really high aggressive defensive line these days is considered, you know, a very um, attractive thing. It's the kind of thing Barcelona do. It's the kind of thing, you know, Pep Guardiola's uh, Manchester City and his Bayern Munich do. it, And that's what Arsenal were all about. And, um, you know, to a certain extent, I think it was just the fact that teams didn't really react to that. You know, teams were still playing big target men, big number nines who were being pushed away from goal by this aggressive offside line. But if they played very quick wingers and very quick forwards who could get in behind, you know, it, the space was opening up for them to, to run into. Obviously, the offside rule was a little bit different there. It was easier to catch players offside. But um, looking back, uh, you know... From the games I watch of, of George Graham's Arsenal, actually, they were quite interesting in the way that they played so high up the pitch. Mm. You you cite three players in the early years or relatively early years of the Premier League who 
because of the the skill sets they had, because of the talent they had, in some ways had an influence on tactics in the Premier League and the way that teams played. And those are Eric Cantona, Dennis Bergkamp and Gianfranco Zola, players who either abroad or at home hadn't quite reached uh, the levels that people had expected. So certainly Bergkamp in Italy didn't work. Cantona was a bit of a rebel. Zola, obviously a fantastic player in Italy. But the influence that they had on the way football was played in England was quite marked. Yeah, I mean, it just completely changed the way that their team was played in, in two ways, both both in a technical sense, because they were number 10s who were looking to get the ball between the lines and encouraging their team to play passing football. But all three of them in particular, I think um, it was notable that the teammates just commented on on their work rate in training. And, you know, that was particularly true of Burkamp, who was um, an incredibly hard worker, the kind of player who, who stays behind at the end of training and just made himself better. And I think to a certain extent, you know, English football was so unprofessional at that time that the idea of someone staying behind and training to work on their finishing was almost a foreign concept. Um, and, you know, we saw what happened with Burkamp at Arsenal. He was the one, really. He came in before Arsene Wenger a year beforehand and, and just, uh, you know, Bruce Rio insisted that Arsenal played the ball into him between the lines. And that really was the catalyst for Arsenal becoming a, an attractive team over the over the next 10 or 15 years. And, you know, you can say the same for Cantona at Manchester United or, or Zola at Chelsea. And I don't think it's any coincidence that those three teams have gone on to be the three most successful teams of the Premier League era. Obviously, there's other factors involved in that. But I think the fact they were ahead of the curve and, and started to play good football was, uh, you know, a massive change. Yeah. Uh, in recent years, I mean, we've seen someone like Jose Mourinho come in and is associated in a way with, with negative football. But who would you say was the first real tactician or the first major tactician of the Premier League era? Well, I mean, I don't think he was naturally a tactician, but I think the development of Sir Alex Ferguson during the 90s was really fascinating. And I think the key here is that Manchester United were in the European Cup almost every season. Mm. And it's a time when England already, uh, sorry, England only had one entrant for the European Cup. And he went from a situation where in the Premier League, pretty much everyone played the same team every week. They didn't look at the opposition. They didn't change their shape. And then he went to Europe and he, he realised that Barcelona and Ajax and Milan and the great teams are just incredibly good in a tactical sense. They have players who aren't particularly talented, but they come in and they do a specific job. They man-mark opponents. Um, they change the system unexpectedly. And so Ferguson basically spent the 90s his midweeks were kind of flying across to Europe to, to personally scout teams. And he was just fascinated at all the systems. And uh, his development from being quite an old-school, back-to-basics motivator in the early mid-'90s to someone who really got tactics by the time Manchester United won the European Cup in 1999, I think he was the first tactician. But I think in terms of foreign influence, when Mourinho and Benitez came to England at the same time in 2004, having just won the European Cup and La Liga respectively, they just changed English football. It just suddenly became so tactical, so defensive. And there was really, I'd say, the most boring period of the Premier League in terms of those head-to-head -head games. I mean, just yeah. the number of times, you know, Chelsea would play Liverpool and it would be a nil-nil or a one-nil. Um, and, you know, if you look at the league overall, the goals per game rate dropped significantly because everyone started playing one up front rather than two up front. But I guess the payoff is the fact that everyone suddenly got good in, oh, sorry, English teams suddenly got good in European competition. And, you know, we got to a stage where almost every year we got to the semi-finals and it was three of the big four who were in European football. So, um, oh, sorry, who were in the, the European Cup semi-finals. So, 
In terms of European football, it made English sides a lot better. But in terms of the Premier League, I think it was by far the, the weakest period in terms of entertainment. As somebody who's who watches football through a, a tactical eye, rather than perhaps a more visceral or, or just what you see, when you see two teams like Liverpool and Chelsea doing what they did, essentially cancelling each other out, is there is there any beauty in that? Is there anything to be um, admired in the way that both teams play? Or does it speak perhaps to a lack of bravery on, on the part of one of the managers not to try and find a way to exploit the way the other is going to play? Yeah, to a certain extent, that's true. I mean... To be perfectly honest, from my perspective, it often makes my life easier because the game often comes down to one or two factors and it's easy to kind of write about. It's it's much more difficult to talk about a 4-3 or, you know, a, a mm. two-all draw when there's so much going on. Um, maybe a lack of bravery. I mean, one of the things I encountered was that um, there was a really interesting quote from um, Jorge Valdano, who obviously used to manage Real Madrid. I think he's still involved there or was until recently. Uh, as a director, obviously a fantastic player in his own time. And he ended up working with both Benitez and, and Mourinho. And what he said was that he thought it was interesting neither of them were a footballer in themselves and, and they didn't actually believe in the talent of players. Um, which I think is, you know, it's easy to say, oh, he wasn't a great player. How can he be a great manager? I think we got over that about 20 years ago. Yeah. But the fact that he said, you know, the systems they create are the kind of systems they need to shine in as a player because it's not about <laughs> expressing yourselves. I think there's possibly something in that. You know, they they had a completely different kind of academic approach to football. And you compare that to the managers of the 90s, whether it's, you know, George Graham or, or Kevin Keegan, different types of managers, but kind of great players in their own rights. And I think, uh, you know, managers who did believe in bringing in great players and letting them express themselves to a certain extent in different ways. You didn't really get that with Mourinho and, and Benitez. And, you know, I think their use of wide players in particular was was very notable. It was all about protecting the fullback rather than, you know, attacking and, and basically being creative. Mm, George Graham's a really interesting one, isn't he? Because his nickname as a player was Stroller. He wasn't seen as the most <laughs> hardworking player, but that's what he demanded from his players. So he wanted something from his players that, that he wasn't prepared to give himself. Uh, as a player and I guess uh, in some ways when you talk about uh, managers who haven't been players or who haven't necessarily played at the highest level Ferguson was one who played uh, uh, at a high level but but I think his career was uh, cut short through injury but he, he was a great goal scorer Arsene Wenger on the other hand was a journeyman player midfielder who ended up as a, a defender but who goes into his uh, managerial career wanting to play this uh, attractive uh, attacking football that's uh, that's his philosophy it's it's an interesting um I, I guess dichotomy between uh, the playing style and managerial style of some of these guys can I ask you you know as we've progressed and we've seen things like Pep Guardiola at, at Barcelona the system that he implemented there with the false nine with with Lionel Messi um how much of what happens in terms of tactical shifts in the game is down to managers or the or the players that are available to the managers that a manager might have great ideas but he may not have the players to implement them or he sees somebody like Messi and comes up with a, a whole new plan a whole new way of playing because he has this incredible talent available to him yeah I mean I think there's always a balance to be found um, I mean what I've tried to do in the book to a certain extent is it's not to consider tactics just in the traditional sense in terms of this is what the manager says, this is what he puts on the blackboard, this is the, how they're going to play, and and kind of focus more on players. 
And so I think the the biggest revolutionaries during the you know the Premier League's early years were not managers; they were players. The players we mentioned in Cantona and Burkamp and Zola. And I think to a certain extent, the Premier League is still slightly resistant to kind of top down tactics, if you can put it that way. And it's all about kind of player qualities and and making sure that players are used in the right way. So yeah, often managers kind of stumble upon things because of the players they have at their disposal. And that's sometimes when you get the most interesting tactical innovations because managers are are forced to think outside the box and do things that maybe they didn't learn in coaching manuals. Um, And yeah, the false nine is, is a great example of that really. Uh, you know, Messi playing in a in a central role probably wasn't what Guardiola envisaged at the start. Indeed, he was playing him on the right, but it just worked out that way uh, at Barcelona in part because Ibrahimovic wasn't playing well, etc. Um, and it became you know Messi's best position really. So yeah, it can happen either way, I guess. Yeah, I thought there was an interesting quote when Guardiola took over at City, and he said, "I need time, but as soon as possible, we're going to try and create team spirit. That's the most important thing. After that, you can create tactics, but we have to create something special within ourselves. So there's still that." focus isn't there in football on these intangibles tactics people can look at you can put a chalkboard up and you can explain how this system worked and when that player goes there and why that player goes there but there's still all the other stuff that bubbles underneath like uh you know work rate how hard do you want it how you know all that kind of stuff i thought thought that was interesting coming from guardiola yeah yeah i think it is very interesting and i think there's something to be said and i don't mean to sound like an old codger complaining about how much players are paid but Players are paid so much these days that I think to a certain extent you can coast through a career and be sure that you're going to make a living and you're going to have a very nice life. And, uh, you know, maybe 20, 25 years ago, you were playing for a contract every year. You know, you you weren't earning, you were earning decent money, but not life-changing amounts of money. And so players really had to be committed and motivated and they had to show that week in, week out, they were up for it. And I think, you know, it's it, maybe it's an exaggeration, but I think to a certain extent that has changed. Um, you know, in English football, there is a feeling that young players coming through are paid enormously well very quickly, um, which probably isn't the right kind of, um, you know, you're not really incentivizing them to, to maximize their potential. And obviously in a, a team spirit sense, that comes into it as well. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As tactics became more sophisticated in the Premier League and we saw managers come in with their new systems and new ways of playing, more focused perhaps on, on the opposition than people would have been used to. Was it? I think it was really interesting, a really interesting section of the book when you talk about Tony Pulis and you talk about Sam Allardyce, that they somehow fashion a very English 
way to deal with these kind of tactics, and that is to essentially batter teams with, with long balls in a way reverting to what the Premier League or what the old Division One used to be. Yeah, I mean, the, the development of the Premier League, I think, has been entirely about foreign influence. It's really difficult to find any British revolutionaries. Um, what British managers have done occasionally, like Allardyce and Pulis, who, let's remember, came up with very modest, unfashionable teams at the time, were widely tipped for immediate relegation. But they just kind of provided a, a problem that I think teams had forgotten how to deal with, particularly Pulis. Um, and I do think, to a certain extent, that's what the Premier League offers. I mean, I, I would hate to have to watch Tony Pulis football every week. I don't particularly like having to watch it twice a year, but <laughs> the fact that teams have different challenges means that it is different, I think, to La Liga, for example, where the vast majority of teams play possession football. And I think in a tactical sense, it's all about variety. That's essentially what tactics is. It's it's about doing things in a different way, about surprising the opposition. And I just think it was, you know, that Stoke period... It was just fascinating to watch how teams would cope. I mean, there was that incident when they played Hull and um, the whole goalkeeper, Boaz Myhill, rushed out to sweep the ball near the corner flag and rather than putting out for a throw, turned around and booted it out for a corner because he was so scared of Rory Dillap's <laughs> long throws. And yeah. just stuff like that made teams reconsider. And there's actually a nice, a nice quote from um, uh, Luis Felipe Sc- uh, Scolari when he was managing Chelsea obviously a World Cup winning manager and he was just amazed at Stoke and he couldn't get his head around it having watched the videos and he just said you know his English wasn't great but he just said I like this because it's different and I think that just summarises it quite well Some teams of course Arsenal I think were, were in particular found it quite difficult to deal with with that kind of football because maybe because they were a smaller team at that point, the the big physical Arsenal side was gone, replaced by smaller technical players, but also perhaps the the lack of focus on what the opposition were doing, that Arsene Wenger's belief that his team should go out and play their football the way that they want to play it. Teams realise that if you you prevent them from doing that and if you try and expose them, uh, it becomes very, very difficult to deal with. And Arsenal really, really struggled. I mean, I think there's something psychological to it as well, isn't there? Because if you look at Arsenal's record against Stoke under Tony Pulis at the Emirates, I don't think they've ever lost a game. I think they've won pretty much every game. But, you know, play the game with the Britannia and all of a sudden it's a very different thing. Yeah, it's bizarre, isn't it? I still think the kind of difference between home and away performances is one of the one of the kind of unsolved mysteries in football to a certain extent. Yeah. It shouldn't make that much difference. Obviously, there are small factors. But like you say, that's I think that is probably the biggest contrast in terms of home and away. Arsenal just never win at Stoke. They always beat Stoke. Um, so, yeah, it's psychological. And um, I guess that's another factor to, to, to consider when you're when you're kind of choosing your team and naming your tactics. But yeah, I, I do think, um, I mean, the Premier League, I think is still a more physical league than other leagues. It's become more technical, more tactical, mm. but there's not really any team who've won the Premier League without being really good physically. Um, and I think that Arsenal side was, in hindsight, probably quite naive, not just in terms of tactics, but in terms of, you know, packing the team with so many small players when, you know, the, the successful Arsenal sides under Wenger always had, you know, Vieira or Petit or Gilberto or those kind of enforcers. I think Arsenal did lack that. And and much as it became a bit of a cliche, I think it probably was true. No, I think so. I think so. Um, you mentioned So Paddy Got Up, which is the book we released through Arsblog back in 2012. 
and you wrote about Arsene Wenger and tactics. Uh, and you said, uh, we're left to conclude that Arsene Wenger is a great legacy builder, an astute economist, a revolutionary physiologist, an intelligent communicator, a good man manager, and an admirable footballing philosopher. Fantastic use of adjectives there. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but the conclusion is, but probably not a great tactician. And I think that's true. I don't know that anybody could make an argument for Arsene Wenger being a great tactician. But how do you view it or how do you respond when people say Wenger doesn't do tactics? He doesn't understand tactics. He just doesn't. He can't do anything. You can't be a manager at that level for that long without understanding tactics to a large extent, even if it's not your your forte, I guess. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think there's actually been a massive change over the last five years in terms of Wenger and tactics. I think there was a period where, you know, that what I will call the Danielson era, uh, that he just didn't get tactics. He didn't change his side. He didn't look at the opposition. And it's been really notable over the past three or four years that Arsenal have changed system for big games. He has made crucial decisions in terms of who he's playing up front, whether it's a quick play or whether it's Giroud. We saw recently that the switch to three at the back, which pretty much saved Arsenal's season. Um, and so I think he has actually evolved as a manager. He has changed. And I think he's got a lot better tactically. I don't think Arsenal are, are outclassed and, and just outthought in the same way they were, you know, in, in 2010, for example. Um, I guess the issue is things change so quickly and we now have such an incredible managerial lineup in the Premier League that you do need to be absolutely on it. But I think in that sense, in a purely tactical sense, I think Wenger has changed his ways. He's realised that he needed to catch up to a certain extent with the way other managers were doing things. And I think, um, you know, that co- that conclusion is probably still broadly true. Yeah. But I think it's... it's uh, he now does tactics rather than not doing tactics. I think that's a, a very simple thing to say, but it's, it's pretty much true. How did you view the move to three at the back when Arsenal implemented it last season? Was it a big surprise to you? Or, you know, because it felt like this was kind of the last thing he had to try, but it was so far removed from anything we've seen from Arsene Wenger in terms of the way that he sets his team up. You you remember famously when, when he took over, um, before he took over, I think Arsenal had a, God, it was a UEFA Cup game, was it? I can't remember whether it was against a German team. And yeah, it was um, Borussia Mönchengladbach. Yeah, and yeah. he came in at half time and switched them from a back three to a back four and Arsenal ended up losing the game. It didn't go down particularly well, but he's always been wedded to that four at the back and then all of a sudden to move to three. I mean, how big a, a surprise was that to you? Yeah, I was absolutely astonished, to be honest. I mean, it had been 20 years since Arsenal played three at the back. It, like you say, it seemed the, the last roll of the dice and... I gather that when they first tried it in training, it really didn't go very well. I wasn't particularly convinced with the way it was uh, implemented in that game away at Middlesbrough, mm. even though Arsenal did win. I mean, Middlesbrough were you know, a terrible team. I think Arsenal probably would have won whatever system they used. But it was really interesting how three or four games in, the players just got it. You know, Suddenly they were really comfortable. And I think there were certain players that suited a lot better, um, particularly Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, who I think um, most of us think of as a, a very good player raw footballer but someone who hasn't really excelled in any position I think wing back was perfect for him I think the way Nacho Monreal adjusted to play left-sided centre-back was fantastic um, when Rob Holding came into the team I think it suited him to be on the outside of a three and it gave Sanchez and, and Ozo a little bit freedom you know to move inside as well which really helped so yeah it, I mean whether it was a really a completely logical thing to do I'm not 
particularly sure. But what it definitely did was it freshened things up and it made players think about responsibilities and just do different things on a week-to-week basis. And I think sometimes just freshening things up and changing things can have a really important impact. And, um, you know, obviously the, the combination of it was beating Chelsea in the FA Cup final and Chelsea, of course, are the team who completely inspired this widespread move to three at the back. Yeah, um, I just thought it was a really remarkable triumph and in a tactical sense, um, by far Wenger's best victory of his Arsenal career because, you know, Chelsea were a fantastic team last year. I mean, they got the second most amount of points in Premier League history. Uh, Arsenal, obviously, without almost any first-choice centre-back and for Arsenal to have the organisation really to outplay Chelsea, I think, for for the vast majority of that game and, and you know, 2-1 win with relatively late goal, I, I don't think does any justice to how good Arsenal were in that game. And I thought that was really impressive from Wenger and to a certain extent demonstrated his his evolution in the tactical sense over the last five years because I just, I don't think Arsenal would have been able to win that cup final in that way if this was, let's say, 2011. I just don't think it would happen. Yeah. I, does playing three at the back give you a bit more... Is it a bit more adaptable than starting? Because you very rarely see teams start with a back four and then move to a back three. Whereas if required, I think Arsenal had a player sent off in one of the games in the run-in and had to go to a back four. Um, it does allow you to shift things around a little more. And also, it, it perhaps, uh, I won't say masks, but enables the midfield area, which has been a, a bit of an issue for Arsenal in recent seasons. It allows... Uh, those midfield players a bit more protection. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think we saw um, certainly Arsenal's midfielders seem to play with more freedom towards the end of the season, particularly Aaron Ramsey, who I think is, you know, I still think he's a fine footballer, but doesn't really suit the 4-2-3-1 because I don't think he's comfortable in that deep role. Yeah. Um, But when he's got three centre-backs behind him instead of two, he's got more licence to push forward. And we saw that regularly towards the end of the season, certainly in the cup final. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, it It just forces players to, to do different things. And I think that's to a certain extent very, very useful. Um, it'd be interesting to see whether Arsenal continue with it, you know, in the upcoming season, because it feels like something that rescued last season, but maybe isn't the kind of the system that will, will really prove effective over a long-term period. I think the other teams who have played through at the back, particularly Chelsea, found that they were almost invincible as you know immediately after switching to it and then gradually teams started to work out how to find weaknesses so whether it's a long term thing we'll have to see but it you know it does show that Wenger can change yeah and look there have been moments in his career in the past where he has i guess been pragmatic about what a the team has to do and b what he's got to work with and you think of the FA Cup final in 2005 when we played uh, very defensively against Manchester United, the run to the Champions League final in 2006, that that back four was so makeshift, uh, Boué, Senderos, Toure and Flamini at left back and set a Champions League record for clean sheets, which is amazing when you consider some of the opposition that they were playing. And uh, I think even a couple of years ago, there was a point when it might have been after Arsenal got beaten by Spurs 2-1 at White Hart Lane and were quite a way behind Tottenham to finish in the top four. But he he, he seemed to implement a, a safety-first approach to the way that the team played. And there were a lot of 1-0 wins, 2-1 wins, clean sheets along the way. They sort of ground out these one-goal victories. So it is something that he has shown in the past. I get your point that increasingly he's having to be more tactically aware, but it's not something that he he's never done. Yeah, I think that's a very, very fair point. And I think that the that period of 2005-06, it's, it's kind of almost inexplicable how Arsenal just became 
really solid defensively for a couple of years and kind of changed the the, the way that they played. I, I can't really understand quite how that happened, to be honest. But that run to the European Cup final was was just brilliant. You know, if that was any other team, I think they'd you know probably get more praise from it uh, than Arsenal because I think people were surprised that Arsenal could play that way and it almost seemed like it, it almost wasn't real whereas if it was a Jose Mourinho or a Rafael Benitez team keeping 11 clean sheets in a row I think they'd get more praise so yeah it's certainly true that Wenger's never done that I guess the question is why there was such a, uh, a move away from that you know towards the the period well I guess the start of the Emirates period mm. um, where Arsenal just were often very weak defensively and and naive tactically, it was just, um, yeah, difficult to explain that, I think. Yeah, maybe when you think football should be played in a certain way, it's very difficult to to go against that. If you firmly believe that this is the way to do it, it must be quite difficult to say, okay, maybe it's not, maybe I'm wrong. You have to make that admission to yourself and, and make the changes, I guess. Um, let me ask you a little bit, uh, just before we finish up, um, about stats and the increase the increased availability of stats and data to football clubs and managers, is that having an impact on the way that they view their teams or the way that they want their teams to play? Yes, I think it is. Um, I mean, I still think we're at a relatively primitive age in terms of statistics. Um, We have lots of stats available. Certainly managers have lots of stats available. Whether they're using them in the right way, I think, is, is questionable. There was a period a few years ago where almost every team started trying to play possession football. And that was partly because of Spain and Barcelona's dominance. But it's partly also because that was the kind of thing they could measure. You could measure how much possession you had. You can measure pass completion rate. Whether that was necessarily conducive for every team to win matches, I think is very much debatable. Um, what I think is is happening with stats is that managers tend to use the stats, I think, to pick out weaknesses whether that's weaknesses in the opposition or weaknesses in their own team and I think that they're focusing to a certain extent they're focusing on improving weaknesses in their own team and it means that if you've got a player who's very good in a certain respect but is very bad in another respect you tend to take a bad kind of view of him and and focus on his weakness and maybe not play him or maybe get him to play a different way and that of course negates his his strength and I think what we're seeing is a real shift towards all rounders in every you know in every mm. position of the pitch, and I think that's you know probably links back to the development of the Premier League as a whole. Back in the early nineties, you had strikers who basically just scored goals and defenders who just you know made tackles and headed the ball away. And now you have a player like John Stones, who's a fantastic footballer but not a great defender, despite the fact he's a defender. I think you can broadly say the same for Danny Welbeck, who I'm a very big fan of, but has never really scored enough goals to make you think he's a, a top class striker. And I think stats is kind of emphasising players' weaknesses. And I think people are very... um, Basically, players are scrutinised to an incredible extent now. Mm. And uh, and they're just forced to be good at everything. And when they're not good at one thing, whether it's their passing, whether it's, I don't know, whether it's Petr Cech and his inability to save penalties, people just naturally focus on the weaknesses, I think, rather than the strengths. And I think that leads to a slightly negative mindset for managers. Yeah, I I thought it was interesting, maybe... Last year, the year before, Arsene Wenger spoke about stats and and how players were perhaps a bit too aware 
of stats. So they wanted to make sure that they finished with a high pass completion rate so they would eschew the more risky pass and just go backwards or sideways or, or, or take the simple option, which is quite interesting. Can I ask what, what perhaps what something like expected goals, how do you view that as a metric uh, to to uh, to judge teams on or to judge systems on? Like if, if a manager buys into the expected goals thing in a very big way, is that not going to impact the way that he instructs his team to play in the final third for example don't take too many shots from outside the box try and work the ball and and get the ball into an area where the the expected goal score whatever it is uh, is higher yeah i mean personally i think that's an example of where stats are probably making for positive um i mean it's funny you say that because i I read a statistic yesterday that last year or last season was the lowest percentage of goals that have been scored from outside the box in premier league history so maybe players are increasingly realising that you need to work the ball into better positions to to get better goal-scoring chances. Personally, I think the expected goals thing works really well. I mean, for those who are kind of unaware of this, it kind of uh, takes a statistical uh, sample of where a shot is play- is is struck from and, and how the ball got there and the situation of the shot and works out really how many goals you'll get Um from that from that chance. So if it's an open goal tap in, it will be 0.99. If it's a shot from the halfway line, it'll be 0.01. I think it's really interesting. I mean, we all kind of look at shots on target figures after games, but we know that a shot on target from 30 yards isn't the same as a shot on target from five. And so it's kind of just trying to normalise that and make it into something that is meaningful. Personally, I think that just the phrase expected goals sounds really weird I don't think it should be I don't think you should be working back from goals I think you should be working forward from shots if that makes sense sure so I think saying a a shot value to me that kind of means a lot more than expected goals you know if you can say oh the value of your shot was 0.2 or even better say as a percentage of 20 percent that I think anyone can understand that you know you can say it was a 20 percent shot I think that makes a lot of sense but um you know, as as always with the stats, the people who are very good at the stats are maybe not so good at the kind of words and, and using terms that make it accessible for everyone. Sure, sure. I think that's a very interesting point, actually. Yeah, rather than goals, shot value would be a much better uh, metric or a much better name for it. Um, so, yeah, maybe it's the, like the tactics truck, expected goals, the tactics <laughs> truck. They need to work on their branding a little bit. Um Right. Well, listen, Michael, thanks a million. Uh, The book is called The Mixer. It's available, I guess, in all good bookshops and uh, digital edition as well on Amazon and iTunes. And there's a podcast series as well. Yeah, we did a kind of eight-part podcast um, just over the summer while people don't have so many football podcasts to listen to that, uh, yeah, is on all the usual channels and I think is is good fun. All right. Well, listen, Michael, uh, thanks very much and uh, best of luck with the book. My pleasure. And thank you very much for inviting me on. Real privilege. Thank you very much indeed to Michael. You'll find links to buy the book, and a really good book it is too. You'll find it on arsblog.com on the post which contains this podcast. You'll find links to the physical and digital books and also uh, to the podcast series that we mentioned right there at the end. Um, Right, well, that's just kind of about it. It was a bit of a surprise last-minute Arscast. Hope you enjoyed it. We will be back, James and I, next week at some point with an Arscast Extra. Before that, we've obviously got... A game against Chelsea tomorrow in China. Let's hope that we, uh, you know, win and smash them to little bits and ruin them, basically, ahead of the new season. That would be fun. 
Then we return to England. A lot of work to do, of course, in the transfer market, both ins and outs. More on the outs than the ins, but I think what happens on the ins is going to be much more important than who we get rid of or who we leave in the reserves for the season. And then the Emirates Cup next weekend. Then it is the Community Shield. And bam, we're right back into the the start of the new season. Wow, time has really flown by this summer. Uh, Don't expect a bit at the end of this Arscast. I'm not feeling well enough, actually, to do that. So uh, you'll just have to make do with what you've got until now. Hopefully it was good enough. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll catch you on the next one. Until then, take it easy. Cheers. Bye-bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.